Well, perhaps you uh, heard about this situation in California a few weeks ago. Uh, they planned a marriage, big marriage, exciting marriage. It was uh, uh, this couple was going to have a feast extraordinary. Thirty thousand dollars was being spent on this celebration. Of course, you can imagine wedding feasts are times of great joy and excitement, and uh, and so everything was set, everything was ready. Well, a couple days before the wedding, the couple decided we don't want to get married. We don't want to get married, and uh, yet all the money had been paid, all the food had been produced. I mean, everything was ready. The feast was set, the food was out, everything was ready, and the day before, boom, it's off. And so what this family decided to do was they decided to just go out into the main road and invite the homeless and the broken and, and, and the people that really don't have any connections. They would never have this kind of celebration and they invited them all to eat of the feast that was prepared for them. And so hundreds of homeless came. They were unexpected to be there, and yet they were dining. Those that were expected to be there weren't there. It's an incredible, beautiful picture of the very passage I'm preaching on today. I mean, the kingdom of God is being declared like a feast for us, just a joyous time. And this passage creates just, I think, some liberty and also some terror because those that were expected don't go. And those who were unexpected actually end up going. So you know where we are in the, in the Gospel of Matthew at this point. So remember, this is the last week of his life. And so on Monday, on Monday of that last week, Jesus comes in on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Now remember what's happening here. He's not just riding a donkey. It's like a petting zoo. He's declaring himself in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 that I'm your king. I'm the king that is bringing the kingdom. The kingdom that was promised long ago, I'm the one bringing it right now. And so he comes into Jerusalem and he exercises his royal right and he cleanses the temple. He throws out those false worshipers. And he sets himself up, and what's he do? Well, he's the king, so he begins to teach. And he teaches that the kingdom of God is at hand. People are called to repent and believe. That was his message. This is the world's biggest problem, is we're out of sync with God. We're out of fellowship with God. And he's saying, listen, repent and believe the good news. He has come to reconcile man and God. And then on Tuesday of that day, he comes back into the temple. And by the way, the lame and the blind came to him and they believed. They believed. They said, Hosanna, you are the one that saves us. You are the one that's going to lead us to God. You are the one that's going to right all the wrongs that came out of Genesis chapter 3. So then they believe the Pharisees are growing indignant rather than celebratory. Right? On Tuesday, he comes into Jerusalem and curses the fig tree. And then goes in and continues to teach with tax collectors and sinners still coming to him. So, so fruit is being born. And then you have on Wednesday. Wednesday is this day of intense debate between Jesus and the religious leaders. In fact, chapters 21, 22, and 23 are all just debates. They're all antagonistic debates between lawyers and Herodians and elders and Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes all arguing with Jesus. Now, we began this day of debate, if you will, back in the first parable, the parable of the two sons. Do you remember that? Two weeks ago, where Jesus castigates the Israel leadership 
because they were hypocritical. They did it all beautifully outward, but there was no inward devotion to God. And we were challenged by that. How we display so much on the outside, and yet inside we often feel like we're just full of dead men's bones, as Jesus said. The next parable that he condemns them with is the parable of the, of the wicked servants. Remember, they had the vineyard, they didn't produce anything, and so Jesus indicts them for fruitlessness. And he even says, I'm going to take the kingdom from you and give it to another people. So now this parable, this parable is incredible. It's a wedding feast. It's kind of like a historical snapshot of salvation history. We're going to see the history of God moving among the Jews and it being rejected. That's the first part. The kingdom will be rejected by the very people that have been invited to it. And then we're going to see the kingdom extended outward to the nations. We're going to see that as the servants go into the, into the main road. And then we're going, to go, we're going to be transported all the way to the end of the kingdom, when the kingdom's consummated, where God walks among those who have professed faith, and he looks at them, and he judges whether they're rightly associated with them or not. So we're going to see the kingdom rejected, we're going to see the kingdom extended, and then we're going to see the kingdom consummated, or judged, or purified, or winnowed. That's where... He weighs us in the balance, if you will. So turn with me to Matthew 22, and we'll read the first 14 verses. Matthew 22. It says, And again, because it's the third one, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murders and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, and cast them into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, so there's three parts to this. The first part's in the first seven verses. And in these first seven verses, you're going to see this kingdom that had been promised and that the people were excited about to Israel was rejected. Now Jesus begins with, he began speaking in parables. Obviously the audience, the strict audience, is still the Pharisees and the religious leaders as it has been, has a much broader appeal. Jesus is speaking to all of us about the nature of this kingdom, and he compares it to a feast, a banquet that has been prepared for a king. Now, kings know how to throw parties. I mean, it's lavish. The proportions are incredible. And the occasion of this feast is a wedding. Now, in our day, it's different than in this day. So in this day, if you were to have a wedding feast, it could last a day or two if you had means, maybe a week.
But when the king would serve a feast for a wedding, it could be weeks, hundreds of animals. It would take weeks to prepare for this kind of feast that they would have. And so Jesus is choosing a feast, a time of great joy and celebration, to describe this kingdom. Now, now how does a feast kind of describe the nature of the kingdom? Well, it's really speaking to the nature of the kingdom being unfathomable joy and satisfaction. When you think about what the kingdom represents, the kingdom represents God sending his son to reconcile this broken world back together to himself, that he is going to undo all the disastrous consequences of sin. When you think about the kingdom, it's a celebration of God that he has sent Jesus to, to die for our sins and to be raised for our life. It's a celebration of where Jesus is coming and in the context of a wedding feast where we are joined with him in union forever. And when you think of the kingdom, you're thinking God finally moving with the Son to bring about a restoration of all things. This is the invitation to which they're invited. God is now moving to reconcile his entire creation to himself. Listen how J.C. Ryle, who's an 18th century excuse me, a 19th century uh, Anglican out of London, he says, uh, there is in this gospel, this kingdom, a complete provision for all the needs of man's soul. There is a supply of everything that can be required to relieve spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst, pardon, peace with God, lively hope in this world, glory in the world to come, are set before us in rich abundance. It is a feast of fat things. All this provision is owing to the love of the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. He offers to take us into union with himself, to restore us to the family of God as dear children, to clothe us with his own righteousness, to give us a place in his kingdom, and to present us faultless before his Father's throne at the last day. The gospel, in short, is an offer of food to the hungry, joy to the mourner, a home to the outcast, and a loving friend to the lost. This is what's being offered to us. This is what we're being invited to. So when he says the kingdom of God is like a feast, where a king had a feast for his son and invited people to come, that's what he's inviting us to. So the invitation to the Christian faith is one of perfect union with God through Jesus Christ. Now, here's the first twist in the parable. The servants go out, And when they invite people, and remember back then, because it would take weeks to prepare a feast like this, there would be an invitation that would go out, and the invitation would go out and say, hey, save, kind of like a save the date card, save this date, here's the wedding, you're invited. But then they'd go out once it's all prepared, and they'd say, it's already come now. But they reject it, it says they refuse to come. We don't know why, they don't say us, doesn't explain it in the text exactly. It could be ambivalence, indifference, maybe they changed their minds, we're not told. But then notice the graciousness of the king. The king sends more servants. It's his feast. He's the king. And yet he's graciously sending more servants. And he's sweetening the pot. He's explaining the nature of this feast. I mean, fatted calves. You can just imagine all the foods that would have been there. And it says they paid no attention. They they went to the farms. They went to their business. They dealt with the everyday stuff. They weren't concerned with it. And then we read in the parable that, in fact, some of them went from a benign rejection to an antagonistic rejection, and they seized and killed some of the servants. 
Now, what I want you to see up through these first six verses is it's really a history of Israel. <clears throat> All the, the, the prophets kept going, right, to invite them, to call them back to walk in unity and promise them that, yes, a Messiah is coming, a Messiah is coming. You see that through Isaiah, you see, through all the prophets in increasing measure. And then finally, God sends John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. And he says, listen, he's here, repent, believe, the kingdom of God's at hand. That's what John preached. And then Jesus came, and by the way, they seized him and killed him. And then Jesus preached the same thing. So Jesus is saying this, and they know he's speaking about him because in chapter 21, 45, they knew he was speaking to them. And so he's saying this, that the kingdom that God had been promising from Genesis 3 is now here in me. And they rejected him. They didn't believe. They didn't follow. Look in verse 7 at the nature of the consequence. He says, the king was angry. He doesn't send servants anymore. He sends soldiers. And the soldiers destroy the murders, and they burn the city. Now, that's what Jesus said in the early 30s, right? Very few scholars don't see this being fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Josephus is a Jewish historian that was embedded in the Roman army, and he records in graphic detail about the nature of the destruction of Israel by the, uh, by the legions of Rome, under the command of Titus, the commander, destroyed the city, took down the walls, burned the temple, slaughtered children, women, men. In that siege of Jerusalem and the greater area of Israel, a million people died. Now, we have skirmishes all over our world right now, and they are significant. But in one major onslaught, a million people died. This is incredible. Judgment fell like a hammer over the rejection. Now, some of you may be saying, well, this seems kind of over the top. I mean, really, they just said no to a party. Is this really, does the punishment really fit the crime? Now, I know we're tempted to think it seems heavy-handed of God. But let me remind you of something. The severity of the judgment that fell over their rejection is only pointing to the incredible value of the invitation that is being rejected. Do you understand the, the glory and the gravity and the, the incredible nature of God, the creator of all things, right now it says that he suspends all the worlds and all the universes by a word of his power. This God moves to a broken people with grace and mercy in his own dear son, and we reject him. It's, it isn't rudeness. It's absolute cosmic treason. It's the creature saying to the creator, I have nothing to do with you. While the, cre while the cre creator is giving breath to the creature. I mean, I mean, we want to see this as absolute, absolute rejection of God himself. So that, that's what we see in the first, and we see this up through the history of Israel, up to 70 AD. Now, now, we still, let me kind of fast forward to right now. We still reject this gospel that's going out. We do. Our, our rejections are the same. There is a benign rejection that we see among many people. A benign rejection of, of indifference or ambivalence. 
Um, you have Sunday after Sunday. The gospel I'm preaching is repeated to you over and over and over. And for many, they don't hate it, maybe. They don't scoff at it. But it means no difference to them. It's really not that new news, and it's not that big of news. I mean, it, it's kind of a, it, there's a kind of ambivalence to the nature of what I'm saying. God, the Creator, sends a Savior down to save us and deliver us so that we are made right with Him here and we have a promise of eternal life forever. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. There's kind of an indifference to it that we have to be careful of. It's a benign rejection. Or as we see in the text here, it's kind of a distracted rejection. You know, we're busy with life. We're raising families. We're developing careers. You know, we're, we're enjoying friendships. You know, we're securing financial, um, we're having financial security for our future. I mean, we're distracted right now. We don't think about the nature of what God's doing. And there is a benign rejection to that. There, there is when, when, even as Bill prayed, that we've forgotten God. Gee, I hope he doesn't forget us. But we forget God. There's a rejection, and, and, and that morphs, by the way, it morphs into more serious rejection and persecution of the faith, and we see that around the world today, this kind of persecution. But I want you to know that all those forms of rejection still come from one root, and the one root is unbelief. It's unbelief in Jesus. Now, I know that may seem obvious to you, but Jesus says this in Matthew 23, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. They did not desire him. They didn't desire. I mean, the disbelief gave fruit of ambivalence, indifference, or just distractedness. We don't believe them. Now, listen, you may be here today, and you may be religious. You may believe in God. You may believe in God. You may be fiscally conservative. You may believe in God. You may be politically conservative. You may, be, you may believe in God and be socially minded and care for the poor. You know, all of those are still forms of rejection. You can believe in God and not embrace the Son. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is holding himself as the unique way of finding God. You can be religious, you can be moral, you can be upright, you can go to church, you can be engaged in a ministry. If you don't honor the Son, then you are rejecting. If you don't believe that he is everything he has said he is, then that's rejection. You know, Jesus makes this very clear in John chapter 5, and this is to the Jew, to the Muslim, to the moralist, to the churchgoer, Jesus says this, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In other words, you can't believe in God and think it's right if you don't honor the Son. See, Jesus' is, a feast is being thrown for him. That, that This is a time of we celebrate Christ, to be Christ-centered, means that we worship the Son for all that he's done to bring us to the Father. And so it isn't enough to be religious. It's not enough to be a church. It, it, there's a devotion, a satisfaction, a joy in Christ as he leads us to the Father, or we have been considered rejecting the Son, just as they did. So have you rejected the Son 
perhaps even by ignorance. Perhaps you didn't know this. Or perhaps you have some hard position. Very few people reject with great antagonism. Some do. Some do. They just, why, why don't they believe? Well, most people, and this is really, I just listened to the beginning of Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon on a parallel passage of this. And he says, the greatest problem of man, the greatest question to reconcile, is why wouldn't we want this? Why wouldn't we want it? I mean, if the offer was made to you, and the king of the land, invite, why wouldn't you want to go? What would stop you from wanting to go? But it's the stubborn pride of men and women who just cannot believe that we're so bad that we need something so great to drag us out of so deep a hole. It's hard to believe. When we look at ourselves and we compare ourselves, we just don't feel that bad. And so we have to submit ourselves to the truth that's given to us in Scripture, which says, no, you are that bad. You do need this help. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said it. If God needed to send us just greater wisdom, he could have done that. If we just need a little help, you know, in that weak part of our lives, he could have done that. But he sent one to give us new life, that we have to be born again. We have to be made new. We can't be made better. We have to be be born again, where he takes out the stone of flesh, the heart of stone, sorry, and puts in a heart of flesh that's soft to the gospel. So this is the warning here. The rejection. But notice what happens. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Because we see this kingdom that seems to hit a dead end with rejection. Oh, no, no, no. Because the gospel and the kingdom's rejected doesn't mean it's thwarted. In 8 to 10, it's now extended. The kingdom is extended. And look what the king does. A third time, he sends the servants out. But now he sends them out to the main roads. He says, go to the main roads and invite everyone. It kind of is reminiscent about what Jesus is going to say in Matthew 28. Go therefore into all the world, making disciples of all nations. It's the same thing. So he sends his servants out to the main road. Well, we're the main road. That's where your tax collectors, your prostitutes, that's where your social outcasts, that's where all the dregs of society, those folks on the lower rung of the ladder, are there on the main road. And they who didn't expect to be invited are now being invited. This is a universal call. No longer is the kingdom associated and tethered to the lineage of Abraham. This is really theologically important. No longer is the the kingdom associated with the nation of Israel. It now extends to all the nations. This is now a universal call. All people are being invited. All people are being invited to believe in this Jesus and find reconciliation with God. And that's what we find happened in the early church. If you read the book of Acts, you just see the church begin to go out in these ever-widening concentric circles from Jerusalem outwards. Listen to what Paul writes about the, uh, about the Corinthians, you know, because the gospel went all the way to Corinth. And here's what he writes. For consider your calling, or I could even put in there, consider your invitation, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is what we see in the church, not just the development of the church, but over these last 
over these last 2,000 years. It just keeps going out among the Gentiles. We see it. And, and so you see a different type of guest now. You see these, these guests are made up with not the powerful, but the weak. Not the, not the smart, but the common. You, know, you, you see the church being filled up with people that understand their need. That's the difference. They understand their need to be redeemed and saved. They understand their need to be delivered. If you're a Christian, it's only because you saw your need. God opened your eyes to your need. I mean, we all have to recognize that to enter this kingdom, you almost have to become spiritual lepers, uh, spiritually blind, spiritually lame. I mean, isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3? So when Jesus is preaching the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he starts out the whole sermon with saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is what? The kingdom of God. To be poor in spirit is to recognize I don't have the capacity. I need to be delivered even from myself because I can just spin myself in a hole of, of selfishness and, and self-destruction, self-promotion, self-protection. So, so these new members of the kingdom are broken people. And folks, if that's problematic to you, then I don't think you understand the nature of humanity and the nature of what the gospel is. But notice with this new group of invitees, there's a great joy. Can you imagine getting an invitation to celebrate the son who's going to be the heir of all things? I mean, there's a satisfaction and joy to be invited to a kingdom. I mean, just think of the blessings of forgiveness, the removal of shame. I mean, the presence of God's spirit, the promises of God to live in this life, or the promises of future blessing and redemption. I mean, these are our blessings. You know, the, the, the dweller in the kingdom, to know that we're in the kingdom, we ought to have a language of joy, of satisfaction, of happiness. It doesn't mean life goes well. I'm not Pollyanna about the world and about the difficulties we have, but the circumstantial and temporal difficulties still are sitting on a foundation of gold that we are part of a kingdom. Carol and I, I think it was Tuesday night, we just sat, we had dinner alone, and we were sitting and just talking about the past 30 years. You really need to understand your history. And we were reflecting on how God drew us out of some busted up relationships, took me out of darkness by revealing to me the great nature of my sin, but also the beautiful nature of the gospel. And over the years, what God has done for us, I mean, our marriage is different, our parenting different. The way we looked at finances, the way we looked at job choices, I mean, the way we viewed life, the way we looked at death, the way we walked with our loved ones, everything has changed in view of knowing that we're part of a kingdom. God has done it all for us, and we just rejoiced over it. We just, if he had left me to my own way, it would have been a disaster of my life. It would have been an absolute unmitigated disaster. I like to think, oh, I can assess all the options and make the right decisions. You know what? I would, have been a, I would have been a monster. Save the grace of God. I mean, think about that. Are, are you part of this kingdom? Have you, have, you really, have you really placed your faith in this Jesus to deliver you? Have you repented of your sins? Are you part of this, this growing kingdom of social outcasts, different from the world? 
So he's calling us. So in the first seven verses, we see the kingdom clearly rejected. In the next three verses, we see the kingdom accepted by a people that you would have never guessed. But now look what we see in 11 to 13. We kind of move all the way to the end. Okay, so the kingdom has been extending, extending, extending. And then we get to this time where now the king's walking through the the wedding feast, right? And and you see it in verse 11. In fact, many scholars think this is actually another parable. Because you notice in verse 1, and he spoke to them in parables. So there could be two parables here. And Jesus might be adding another parable about what it's going to be like on the last day. So we had this king walking through, and he sees this man without a wedding garment. And he says, how did you get in here? And of course, the man's speechless. Just a freebie, free tip right now. Don't think that when you die and stand before God, you're going to be across the table explaining why it was different for you. And, and why, you know, hey, God, hold it now. I had a different set of circumstances. There is not a dialogue at the end. He knows everything. He, he can discern every thought and intention of your mind and heart. So the man's speechless. Why? Because he's guilty. He's absolutely guilty. He's got nothing to say. He has no excuse. There's nothing to dip back. Well, this happened when I was a kid, or this shouldn't have happened. None of that goes on. He's speechless. See, what God's doing, the picture here, is it's at the end of time, and the kingdom has fully swelled. But remember what he says here in verse 10. He says this, The servants went out to the roads, gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the kingdom hall, or the wedding hall, was filled with guests. So there's a picture here of everybody that claims the community of faith is not participating in the community of faith. There's a mixed bag is what I'm saying. And there's going to be a day where God weighs out the legitimacy of is there faith in the heart of this person. That's what he's doing. But let me first ask about this wedding garment because there is no small amount of ink that's been spent on trying to explain what this wedding garment is. It's a critical question, I admit that, because without the wedding garment, what happens to him? He's tied hand and foot, and he's thrown into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we need to know what this wedding garment is. Now, some people think that it's the righteousness of Christ, and they would find that in chapter 66 of Isaiah, the 10th verse, where, where this idea of we're robed in the righteousness of Christ, and so they take a robe of righteousness and they see it fitting here. And it does fit kind of nicely. You don't really see anything spoken of about righteousness in the passage, but, you know, it may fit. That's, that's an option. Another option for what this garment is, is the good works of the saints. The good works that display true faith are meted out in the life of the saint, and so that would evidence true faith. And you might find a verse in Revelation 19.6 that could support that. Well, those are both possibilities. I probably would go for this one. Let me submit to you a third one. The third one is this, that I think the wedding garment, and I'm trying to stay in the context of this chapter and the book, and I think the answer to the symbol is found in what happens to him because he doesn't have a garment, which is he's thrown out of the kingdom. So the garment seems to... seems to point to inclusion in the kingdom. Now, throughout the whole gospel, what have we found brings one to be included in the kingdom? But repentance and faith. When John started preaching, repent and believe. When Jesus started preaching, repent and believe. In other words, the man who tries to come to God on his own terms, 
or the woman that tries to come to God being moral, being upright, doing the right things, or hanging around with religious people, they have no garment. But the person that repents of their sin and says, yes, I need a Savior, and you hook the safety of your soul to Christ and Christ alone, you repent of your sins and you believe in him, that I think is the garment that he's speaking about. I mean, all through the Gospel of Matthew, it's repentance and faith, repentance and faith. And I think that's the garment. Now, what we see here with a man that doesn't have a garment is that the church, as the kingdom is extended, the church is, in fact, a mixed bag. There will always be people here in the church that believe, and some are uncertain whether they believe or not, or they think they believe, or maybe they're deceived. You know, you have the wheat and the tares, right? You have the field of wheat. And then Satan sows the seeds and the tares grow up and the servant says, hey, should we take out the tares? He says, no, wait until the end. We'll separate them at the end. The same thing in the parable of the dragnet. He throws the net into the sea, brings it up. What are they going to do? Wait, and then they separate the good from the bad fish. Or the wise and the foolish virgins. We'll hit that in Matthew 25. It isn't until the groom comes that we find out who is the wise virgin and who is the foolish virgin, virgin who didn't have enough oil. So there's a mixed bag here. This is a warning to us. This is, we have been given a gracious warning to discern, am I wearing a garment? Have I repented? Have I believed? This is a time for us to to take stock and think through these issues. Is there the fruit of repentance, as John called for? Is there fruits of repentance in terms of sorrow and, and, and seeking forgiveness? You practice reconciliation, that, that you strive towards holiness. You have a life of confession. You have a life of integrity. You care about justice. All these things being born out of your faith in God. This is evidence of the fruit of repentance. So we see here the kingdom rejected in the first seven verses. You see the kingdom beginning to expand in verses 8 to 10. And then you see that little snapshot of God kind of cleansing the kingdom, winnowing the kingdom, if you will. So what do we do with this? Well, let me just give you a couple thoughts to think about if you're not thinking already. The the first thing would be, uh, I would ask you to consider the heart of God for just a minute. Just consider the mercy of God that we see. God is seen as a pursuer. You know, the old poem, The Hound of Heaven. God is pursuing us. He sends servants after servants after servants. Some of you have been raised in Christian homes. How many times has God invited you through the presentation of the gospel? Thousand? Ten thousand? How many of you that are older, that have come to faith later, how often did you hear it and you never responded? You rejected. Maybe in a benign fashion, but you rejected. But now you believe. I mean, the heart of God pursuing and pursuing and pursuing you. Nobody can come to the kingdom apart from an invitation, and he's been calling out to you. And look at the breadth of his grace. He doesn't just call out to the cleaned-up ones. He goes after the drags. He goes after the lower rungs on the ladder. I mean, the mercy of God deserves your consideration in your life. He deserves you to think about that. We often think we're coming to him. C.S. Lewis kind of said it this way. He says, uh, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. He says, to me, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. God's the cat. And he's pursuing us. 
And His grace is pushing us over and over and over to pursue us. Hey, if, if you are here and you don't really know where you are in the faith, you just know that your life is a train wreck and you continue to fall into the same things, please don't turn away from God. Don't say, I can't, because people will say to me, I can't go back to God. I mean, I've asked him for forgiveness a thousand times. I cannot go back to him. But friends, you can see the mercy of God is beyond tracing out. Turn to God. Go for the 10,000th time. I mean, go and go. God's mercy is beyond your understanding. You've failed in your marriage. You've failed in your job. You've failed in your parenting. Appeal to him. Repent of your sins. Ask him for the grace. Ask him for grace. Think about Isaiah 55. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. You get the same language of feasting there. This is God beckoning us to himself. No matter how bad you think you've been, just repent. I'm asking you today, repent and believe that Christ is sufficient for you to cover all your sins and shame and guilt and draw you to himself. There is God, his grace is beyond your ability to sin. Okay, the second thing I'd ask you to consider, I'd ask you to consider just the nature of the glory of the kingdom. Too often times we hear the gospel and we want to shrink wrap the gospel into a ticket from hell. In other words, it's getting out of hell. It's if I've got cancer and I believe the gospel, I'm okay. Now, let me try to say that is really an over-reduction of a complex and glorious invitation we have. I mean, when you think about the kingdom, right now there are blessings for those in the kingdom. We can stand reconciled and forgiven to God. We can stand in community with one another. We can take the promises of God and we can plead them with confidence because they apply to us. We can know that there's nothing. You know, read uh, Romans chapter 8. There is neither life nor death, angels nor demons, things present nor things to come, nor anything else in all creation. The height nor depth can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing. We are the most stable, confident, joy-filled people in the midst of the most chaotic and disordered world because... We are now adopted forever. Not one of those given to me, Jesus said, will I lose. Not one. Not one. So when you think about the kingdom, think about what it is now, but think about what it will be. I mean, we have to only walk through the door of death to find the Savior and to see him where faith becomes sight. I mean, there's no more mourning, crying, or pain. Think about the nature of heaven. I mean, just dwell on it. Will you consider with me would you take time? I mean, folks, we analyze stock prices. We analyze sporting scores. We analyze fat, fall fashion. We analyze things that change every day. They change every day. And yet this is permanent, fixed. Jonathan Edwards wrote a lot about heaven. And, and, and here's what he said about it. He says, heaven is likened in scripture to a splendid and glorious city. Many men are ever surprised and amazed by the sight of a splendid city. But we need not to be told how often 
We need not to be told how often heaven is called the holy city of God. Other cities are built by men, but this city, we are told, was built immediately by God himself. His hands reared up the stately mansions of the city, and his wisdom contrived them. Listen to Hebrews 11. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Other cities that are royal cities, that is, cities that are seats of kings, and where they keep their courts are commonly above all the others, stately and beautiful. But heaven, we are told, is the royal city of God, where the king of heaven and earth dwells and displays his glory. This is the city of the living God. I mean, you cannot bump into that as a thought. You need to go there and think and meditate and consider. The third thing I would ask you to consider is your own faith and its fruit. That you would check out the style of garments that you're wearing. Now listen, you notice the man in the parable, he seems unaware. He's either deceived, massively ignorant, or just not even considering what it might be. But he seems to be among the among the throng of saints, and he doesn't see any difference. Why? He's probably never put his face in his belly button to find out, what do I believe? What do I think? You know, so, so, so scrutinize. You know, ask a, a, a husband or wife or close friend to, to help you. Do you see righteousness in my life? Do you see the extension of forgiveness? I mean, do you see fruits of repentance? Do I reconcile quickly? Do I walk with integrity? Do I repent when I sin? Do you see things in me that would indicate I'm actually a child of God? Now, folks, I'm not wanting us to go so far inward that we become some form of pretzel. I I just want us to follow Paul's instruction. In 2 Corinthians 13, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. That's what he tells us. He says, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you? If Christ, the living Lord, by his Spirit dwells within you, light will shine. Some degree of it. You're going to sin, but light's going to shine through repentance and faith. So so discern these things. Are they present in your life? You know, the the book that we as a staff are reading, uh, this biography on Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, uh, the first church he took was in uh, Aberavon in Wales, England. And uh, he was an evangelist and very effective at it. But the, the bulk of the people that were coming to Christ in his ministry at the beginning were members of his church. They were members, they were church members, they were, they were churchmen and churchwomen. Uh, they were the ones that would consider themselves Christians. And they're the ones converting. Why are they converting? Because they had never repented. They had never seen themselves in desperate need of a Savior. They had never repented and placed their faith in Christ and found that the works and the righteousness of Christ would put them in good stead with God. So most of the conversions were from the church. I trust that will even be so here in some measure. And then the last thing I'd ask you to consider is the judgment of God. Now listen, I know the judgment of God is a heavy topic. We're going to be hitting it more as we get to chapters 24 and 25. But I would say this. Many people I know you struggle with, how can the judgment of God, this, this massive hammer, as it, as it kind of appears, how can we reconcile it with the grace of God? Well, they have to go together, don't they? I mean, doesn't, doesn't justice demand evil to be punished? I mean, doesn't grace and justice have to go together? If there was no need for justice, what would grace be? 
Grace is the removal. The removal from bearing the judgment of God. That's what grace is. And grace is not grace without judgment. So consider the nature of judgment. And let it well up in your own delight from being delivered. But let it also well up in a concern for those around you who don't know this gospel. Who don't believe in Jesus. Who don't see a need for a Savior. Who are satisfied with a little bit of God in their life. Let it well up within you to develop some courage to begin to say, I have to talk to you about these things. You know, because... Judgment fell in 70 AD. It was a temporal judgment on a certain people at a certain time. But it was done to point to a permanent judgment, eternal. It it, it points to it. If he does this in the temporal, physical realm, it will happen in the eternal, spiritual realm. And so so for me, there's a burden to want to say, I, I can't save the world. God, just those in the immediate circles that you've given me, have I displayed the gospel? Have I declared the gospel? God, would you give me an opportunity to speak to this in sweet, gracious, truthful manner for people? So we see here kind of a a quick history of God's redemptive plan for the world. The salvation of the kingdom coming through Israel, they reject, it extends to the nations, and it will continue to extend until that one day when the Father walks through and he says, Wear the garments among you. So let's consider these things. Let's consider the mercy of God. Let's consider the glory of the kingdom to which many of us have been called. Let's consider our own faith. And if there are some among you that you're not certain, you're not sure, you're uncomfortable, please come forward. Don't delay. Don't don't say, I'll do it next week. When the party's on, the party's on. You you know, parties don't go. You, You can't come later. I would come now. Resolve the issue if it's burdening your heart. And then consider the judgment of God, not as a woe is me, but no, this is a reality that's coming and we want to live in light of it. So let's take a minute now. And and this is a time of silent reflection. We pray specifically for these next few minutes that you'll have before Levy comes and closes us in prayer. You'll have a few minutes. This is where you're called to think about these things. God, reveal these things to me. Reveal my sin. Draw me to yourself. Thank you.